0: It is impossible to conceive that such a large body of land, as large as all Europe, does not produce vast rivers, capable of being navigated into the heart of the interior. Joseph Banks, 1798.
1: They're just such powerful cultural symbols. They stretch back in our imagination through generations. And I don't think it matters really from what culture you're from, that rivers are one of those trans-historical powers, that whether you're from the Mekong Delta, or from the Middle East, or from England, or from uh, Dubbo, you're going to have stories about rivers, and they're going to be a really crucial part of uh, your life story, which is tied to the, the obvious point that water is, a, is the source of life seven tenths of our body is water. And there is that intimate connection between that powerful life force and the, the physical formations that convey water in extraordinarily beautiful and powerful and destructive ways and creative ways also. So there's this there's this really great mix of the raw imaginative power of rivers as symbols of life and of death and of creation um of divinity of sensuality combined with the very practical relationship they have to keeping our bodies ticking over by helping us put food in the uh, food in the tum
2: That was Paul Sinclair director of the Healthy Rivers campaign Environment Victoria Hello and welcome to hindsight I'm Gretchen Miller, and this is the first of two programs which explore the cultural history of fresh water in Australia. Rivers, irrigation, farming and the environment have not had an easy relationship for much of the period of European settlement. From the myth of the inland sea to the highly scientific approach to large-scale irrigation, rivers have offered the answer to our dreams of prosperity and development. But what rivers we have... Often dry, sometimes flooding extensively, they defy European desire for order and regularity. Since settlement, Australians have wanted to alter the course of rivers, and in so doing, fight against the very climate itself.
3: You perish, uh, well, All that country where you are full of water. You perish down there. If you don't know where to go and she's could be 20 miles for drink down there at times yeah. and you got to know where the main holes are to find them. There's per- people perished down there in the I channel, in spite of its name, there's people perished down there.
2: Burton Wills?
3: Yeah, and a policeman. He was too tight to pay board at the JC. So he rode in and went the wrong way and died at policeman's hole down here on South Galway. And he rode on the sandhill. This has been passed down to me by Dad. Man lost heading west. Rode on the sandhills, And then how they found him, his horse came back here. If he gave his horse his head, it come back to the water, you know? So they tracked the horse back and found him then, but he was dead. So they buried him down there at Placeman's Hole, which was a dry water hole.
2: There is one last major wild river in eastern Australia and it is named not a river, but a creek. The 1,300 kilometres of the lazily winding Cooper's Creek start with the Thompson River up near Huwenden in northwestern Queensland and end at Lake Eyre in South Australia. Aboriginal Australians used it as a livelihood and trading route, and it was where the explorers' Burke and Wills starved to death amidst its bountiful plenty and where the cattle kings lived out their dreams on the backs of the fattest cattle in the world. The Cooper flows through land so flat that if not the creek itself, its mate, the Strzelecki, will flow backwards. Like all the rivers that flow to Lake Eyre, the Cooper does not take a particular path but moves crabways across the land according to the amount of water it holds. Cooper's Creek is also significant because it is the last river not to have its flow heavily modified by water harvesting or irrigation. So it is along the Cooper, with its myths and histories old and new, that we meander in these two programs, exploring the hold water has on our bodies and our souls.
4: Cooper's Creek has had a... Fascinating impact, I think, upon many of the European explorers and settlers who first encountered it. They expressed a sort of formless fear about this dead riverbed. Something about it really disturbed them, unnerved them. I think the fact that the sort of bones of the river were there, but that it was so rarely animated by water, it seemed to contradict all their sense of what a proper river or even creek might be like. And so one finds again and again throughout the 19th century and the 20th century, Europeans encountering the river and expressing not just surprise, but something that one can only describe as deep anxiety or fear about the nature that they're seeing. And I guess it's something about a river which is landlocked and frustrated, almost curling in on itself, emptying into nothing that that's not what a river should do. It should release into an ocean, into a sea. It should animate the land. It shouldn't uh, just end up nowhere. It shouldn't just soak up water. It should flow, and it should flow predictably, regularly, continuously. And, of course, we know and they came to learn that those inland rivers like Cooper's Creek animated periodically and unpredictably by great flows and that... A pulse of life follows that flow down the river and one of the things that people observed and commented upon, and we do today, is the amazing contrast between seeing that land with water in it and that land in a drought. A place that can seem like a, a stony desert it suddenly can become a wildflower garden, it can become a place where there's pasture and where one could imagine homes and settlement and industry, productivity, but so soon it can return to a um, just a a dry and sort of fearful (laughs) riverbed. So I guess there's that response to um, a river which uh, doesn't flow, or at least if it flows, it flows very unpredictably and irregularly in such a way that it really hardly deserves the term river Mm. as they see it.
2: Historian Tom Griffiths. What a beautiful plain. What is it?
3: Just asking when I take... I played the whole 170 for nearly 17,000 hours. It's still in there. I've still got it in the wrong way. I'll get, I'll get in. Now, hang on. Once I get the seats for it, I'll get you in fast. You can get in there and I'll belt you in.
2: Now, Sandy Kidd, of the property Ordell, is known as the best pilot in the cooper catchment. Flying with him in his little four-seater over the vine-like tendrils and green fingers of the great belly of the cooper, you soon learn just how much he loves the country. He points out the light on the ghost gums, which are just sticks beneath us, and the painted beauty of a perfect red sand dune, the spinifex and rue making a delicate tracing. Married to Anne, Sandy describes himself as born to the land, and is generation three and five generations of the family.
3: That was many and tall boys, eh? They were the Aboriginals. They were wonderful people. Yeah, I, I never knew them, of course, but they used to take those kids at sunrise and bring them back at Sunday. They looked after, and ta- that's why they were so smart. They could read the ground, they could track a snake. Look, they knew everything because those old people taught them.
2: In 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 this photograph, talk, tell me who's who. Who's that? So that. That's, that's Manny.
3: And that's Torboy.
2: Husband and wife?
3: Yeah, oh yeah.
2: And who were the kids? That's my dad.
3: That was his twin sister. And that was Kitty, the eldest one, and that was Bud, the youngest one.
5: Kitty was born with the years, wasn't she? Um, so she looks like she was about nine, maybe. No?
2: Uh, about
6: 1909.
2: How long has your family been here? Uh,
3: Annie. When did grandma's mob come out here? Well, my grandma was born and over the here at Hammond Dance. was born there in uh, 1880 or 1881.
2: To which family?
3: Hammonds. My grandmother was a Hammond. The Hammonds, the Jurochs and the Tullys all came out here together.
1: And, wasn't and the she? Costellos.
3: I missed one out. And he was the brains, he was the bushman, he was the survivor. Tom Hackett was the first white child born on the Cape. He was married and Grandma Kidd was the first white woman born on the keeper.
2: What about, you know, the women in oh, the properties?
3: Look, without the women, well, there'd be no breeding program, put it that way, but uh, those women did it hard. My grandmother, she used to put everything out on the lawn at night to get cool, on dark and bring it in before sunrise, you know, meat and veggies and everything, went out at night on the lawns, and you pull them in at dark, you know.
7: If you think about what inland Australia was up to 140, 60 million years ago, that's when you would have found, I guess, the Great Inland Sea, basically where inland Australia was cut up into different islands and there was a sea extending from about Brisbane right into the central part of Australia and up into the Gulf of Carpentaria. And we see little snippets of that in the fossil record in things like plesiosaurs and sharks that keep turning up in these fossil deposits in Central Australia. What then happened is that about 20 million years ago there was a change as the sea was cut off And we had a whole series of permanent freshwater lakes. And I guess this was the time of probably the highest biodiversity in in inland Australia. These were times where there were at least two or three species of flamingo wandering around these lakes, freshwater dolphins, new species of crocodiles, two or three species of pelicans and storks. And around the outside you would have got I guess the megafauna, the diprotodons, the palachestids, the marsupial lions and even those large goannas that are, you know, twice the size of the Komodo dragon. They would have all been wandering through the forests that would have uh, been around the edges of these massive lakes.
2: And then at what point did it really start to dry up?
7: It started really, I guess, 10 to 25,000 years ago. That was a period when we really went through a dry patch.
2: Richard Kingsford, principal research scientist with the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service.
6: There's some pumpkins coming, another one there's one in there, another one over there. There's about four or five good ones coming on it. Oh, some I see. here was coming somewhere, another one coming, that one just coming. And there's another watermelon there. there's a few good watermelons on it. Well my family, my mother. She married, and where did she land out down where Lockhear National Park is in 1907 she came out? There nothing there, because there were no mail services, no telephones, no made roads, and very little, just the land was just opening up. She's there for a few years, her husband Mr. White at that stage had had an accident of a horse, and he only lived for a few years. My father, who was a friend of theirs down at Murray, the two families, and he came out to sort of manage the property for her, which at that time consisted of 48,000 acres. The eastern boundary was fenced, and part of the western boundary was fenced, and there was nothing else, no boundary fences, so surveyed lines through the scrub.
2: Bruce Emmett took on the management of his family property, Noonbar, in 1939, at the age of 18. Over time, he bought up three properties totalling 130,000 acres on the Thompson River, which, with the Baku, flows into the Cooper. Northeast of Sandy Kidd's property, on the beginnings of Channel Country, the scenery is a mix of sandy soils and mulga woodland, interdispersed with tributaries and fingers of dry creek beds. Bruce is the second generation on the land. His son, Angus, whom we'll hear from later, now manages Noon Bar.
6: They moved out there and lived in a tent on a spring. There were no made waters, no buildings, no fences, nothing. My father and the man then started with a horse and grey. There were no motor vehicles. And they started to fence the boundary line, which was a distance they had to finish, for 29 miles, not kilometres, miles. And Crowbar and shovel they started to to six were boundary fence which they persevered with and did and that's how they began and from there then there's no water no buildings as I said they're living in a tent where our present home is with a little wonky scoop which is a one little horse scoop and hand plough and walking behind it they started and they built a 7000 cubic meter dam as we call it a ring tank and that is the water and when they got the water in they then put up a small cottage built pretty rough one beside the water, and that became the centre of Nunma, which is still there, not the building, but that's the centre. My mother there and father, for the first eight years, for my mother to come to town meant a three days trip, two nights on the road, camp, travelling on a horse and buggy. Three days up, stay shopping in town, and three days back, and that's how they lived for the first eight years.
7: It's a massive catchment. I mean we're talking about an area that's probably about 20 or 30 percent bigger than Victoria that starts uh, probably about three or four hundred kilometres west of Rockhampton and then you go down this big swathe that cuts through the middle of our continent right down to Lake Eyre and that's really the end of the Cooper Creek catchment. And it's driven by rain and often the cyclones that get blown off course off North Queensland they're the ones that, I guess, deliver the big boom periods. Those, those immense floods that we get in inland Australia make their way down this incredibly complex uh, river system that's primarily got two feeder rivers, uh, one of which is the, the Thompson system, and then coming in further down to the south is the Barku. And those two rivers come together and they channel into meet the cooper and it's probably one of only very few river systems in the world that's a creek and that's actually filled by two rivers and it is it's an amazing in its sort of complexity in terms of how often the floods come but also where they go and it changes all the time so that sometimes you can even get some bushes growing in the channel and that will affect the whole river system downstream as the river finds another path and down below where the Baku and the Thompson meet is what' everyone knows as a channel country. It's very low relief you know there's a, I think there's about a 17 centimeter in every kilometer slope. So you can imagine you just need any sort of a blockage to change its path and depending on where the waters come from, what it's hit, you get this ever-changing, myriad of channels and you look at them in the evening light and the water reflecting and it just looks like a huge puzzle. But this is this massive floodplain that can be sort of 70 or 80 kilometres wide before it goes on down through Kungi Lake system and eventually gets to Lake Eyre.
5: As I felt assured of two lines of migration thus tending to the same point, there could be little doubt but that the feathered races migrating upon them rested at that point for a time. So I was led to conclude that the country to which they went would in great measure resemble that which they had left, that birds which delighted in rich valleys would not go into deserts and into flat country. So at the point at which migration might be presumed to terminate would be found a richer country than any which intervened. Captain Charles Sturt, 1849.
7: What did it look like? It's indescribable. It's ever-changing. There's always something different. We were going out there about every three months to look at waterbird populations across basically the bottom end of the cooper, right out to Lake Eyre and to the big lakes north of the Flinders Ranges. And I just remember that sort of absolute anticipation every time we went out every three months, not knowing what it would look like, how different it would be and every system that you came across there were just surprises. Um, Waterbirds were prolific, they were just everywhere and literally hundreds of thousands and incredible diversity from sort of pelicans to swans and small migratory waders from the northern hemisphere. That diversity of life was just mind-boggling. and So every time we go out there and we sample, if you like, the landscape, it's um, from a height of about 50 metres. We're able to see right across these lakes. and um, I remember even getting a bit worried when lake air was uh, about 50 or 60% full because when you get into the middle you actually lose the horizon. It's It's a worry because you're actually not sure unless you've got the radar altimeter on just how high you are. And there's always a danger that you might actually fly into the water, thinking that that's part of the sky.
3: Hello, hey. How are you going?
6: Good.
8: That's good. Finally made it here. Yeah.
6: After all this time. That's homemade
8: lemon cordial, not rum. <laughs> yeah, that looks pretty good. So that sort of
2: works out really well, While many grazing practices have changed, the actual experience of this landscape, the physical and psychological impact of the floods and devastating droughts is much the same. Pastoralist Julie Grove's family arrived here 100 years ago and her great 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 uncle was the explorer Edward John Eyre, and it was the Eyre family which took up the property, Hortenvale where Julie and her husband Ian live. There are red sand dunes here covered with spinifex, grassland and ghost gum. The dunes are permanent and made from wind-blown sand from the floor of the ancient inland sea. Hortonvale is right on the junction of the Thompson and Baku rivers where they turn into Cooper's Creek. The rivers were first discovered in 1847 by the explorer Edmund John Kennedy.
8: Like he couldn't get all that far, he had to turn Got back, but, and he described it as large cracks and his horse was actually falling down them and that happened to us in so much this time um, but in the 92 with cattle, Ian went down and couldn't work out what was wrong, these cattle were just lying there like right away from water he eventually found one, and the whole length of its leg was down a crack, and they were just too weak to lift themselves out. And that, and that was um, Kennedy. The same thing happened to him when there was no stock at all. Here, yeah. and I think these days most people like they talk about overstocking, but you know, sort of you have a stocking rate. It's not just the here and now. It's that actually knowing um, the whole system, because let's face it, if you overstock you lose money. The crux of it is the rivers are important to us and there's attack, like you make your living off them but sort of that sentimental value, appreciation of the whole river system as a whole is still with us. I hope it never goes. Yeah. Oh, you become a bit passionate about yeah. My great grandfather, he came up, I think they came from around Tibberborough, Broken Hill, but they came up here, and he was actually on the rabbit netting fence, and I think they had about 500 sheep, but they just drive along, drive the sheep with them, and that's how they lived. One stage, his brother had the Coban Co coach run from Longridge to Windora. So this is a photograph of, this is the Longridge Post Office. Outside, you can still see the Longridge Post Office there. It hasn't changed that much. It's the original building. Mm-hmm. And that's the actual coach that he used to drive in the mail service going through to window. I haven't got an age on the photo. Wow, early 1900s. Yeah.
3: All the rain in the world will not grow feed in those national countries. You saw for yourself. Right. If it doesn't get the flood, she's not real good. Have you seen many changes in
2: the
3: channels? None, none whatsoever. Just the stayed way. That way. And when you read all those old explorer books, and the whole bit, these, and Life of John Collins, and Mitchell's Diaries, it has not changed one bit since those people were there now. And I wasn't around in 1883 when Mitchell came, so, but he turned back. Where we we were flying there today, he turned back because he couldn't get feed for his horses. And there was no water away from the main channel there. And that's before it was ever stopped. He just couldn't get enough feed down there for his horses.
0: The old native is still in the camp quite satisfied. He had been greatly attracted by the boat and explained to the men that it was topsy-turvy, and pointed to the northwest as the place where it would be wanted. I am therefore in hopes that he has come in from the westward, and that we shall induce him to accompany us. I took him this afternoon to the boat, the use of which he evidently understands, and he pointed directly to the northwest as the point in which there was water, making motions as if swimming, and explaining the roll of the waves and that the water was deep. If we should indeed find an inland sea, it would make up to us for every delay. But whether or not I humbly look to the guidance of Providence at this important juncture. Charles Sturt, 1845.
2: You're listening to Hindsight on ABC Radio National with me, Gretchen Miller. The first explorers of the inland were searching for many things – fame and fortune, and of course, land that could be settled and farmed. In so doing, they were also looking for water. The inland sea was one thing they thought must lie in the centre of such a large land body, or as Joseph Banks imagined, a great river which would handily link the disparate settlements. The explorer Captain Charles Sturt looms large in the national imagination and we can't leave him or the boat he took on his search for the inland sea in 1844 out of this story. He also introduces a certain moral fervour which infused our thinking about water through the 19th and 20th centuries, even to this day.
9: Now, Sturt, in my view combines some very distinctive qualities. Politically, he was a Tory. He is very like a character out of a Jane Austen novel in that he's very uh, fixated on personal preferment and he wants to get a good salary. He wants to be able to buy uh, respectability for his wife and for his children. And that kind of preferment he seeks by building a career as an explorer. But he's also a Christian evangelical And he develops the idea that God has set him aside for the task of discovering the inland sea and revealing it to Australia. He becomes convinced that Providence has a plan for his life. And he says of other explorers, he says when he farewells Air, that Air won't even make it to the centre of Australia. Air sets out, you know, to look for the centre of Australia, doesn't make it, in fact, and heads off across the Nullarbor. Now, Sturt predicted that. He said, air's not going to make it to the centre of Australia because this is a task preserved by Providence for me. So it's quite a mystical and strange idea. And I reckon that Sturt invested in the inland sea a kind of spiritual intensity. In fact, he reminds me a bit of Speak, you know, of Burton and Speak fame, who went off in search of the Nile. Now, Speak said... When he saw Lake Victoria, where the the Nile originates, he said, the lake is the great source of the holy river which cradles that first expounder of our religious beliefs. Of course, he's thinking about Moses and the bulrushes being found on the Nile. So he invests the Nile with a religious significance that speaks to Christianity and says it all originates in this great lake which they call Victoria. Now, I, I reckon that interest in the source... Of water and investing the source with a mystical power, a religious power, which is also an imperial power, really shows you the kind of mindset that Sturt had, and I don't think that's a mindset that is commonly shared in colonial Australia. When Sturt finally sets his eyes on the centre of Australia in 1844-45, he's just heartbroken because the paradise that he dreamed of, that he thought was divinely inspired or divinely ordained isn't there. And so Australians come to the view, they come to the exceptions that the centre of Australia is a desert.
2: Historian and broadcaster Michael Cathcart. Where is his earthly grave? Have faith. The will of God gave him honourable ground in the wide, silent desert. Desert. That was the epitaph the German community of Melbourne gave to Ludwig Becker, scientist and artist who died on Birkenwill's expedition to inland Australia in 1861. Becker's paintings were exquisite, almost luminous, and he often painted in miniature for easy portability. He'd sit up and make notes and draw after a hard day's work, while the rest of the team slept.
1: He kept mucking up. He was a, uh, a German migrant who came out into, to Australia, I think it was in, in the 1850s he came out. He got sick of the um, Christian Puritanism in, in uh, Germany and came out to Australia. And he was a bit of a jack of all trades. He was a bit of a natural scientist. He was a bit of a, a drawer. And he told a great story. And he, he sort of wandered around Australia for a while, spent a bit of time down in Tassie, went to the goldfields. And eventually he ended up getting roped into going with Burke and Wills on their exploration of inland Australia as their um, natural historian. And he drew a whole series of drawings and watercolours and did some pretty ordinary scientific experiments that he he sent back to Melbourne. He didn't actually make it back from the Burke and Wills uh, expedition. He died on the way.
2: How did he represent the landscape and water in it? Ludwig
1: was one of those people i think who must have woken up in the morning some of the mornings at his campsite and wandered away from the camp and looked out on that landscape and thought to himself my god you know it's so big it's so powerful there are so many things things to understand here and water was part of that the rivers were part of that but so were the vast sort of saltbush plains you know so was the Ab- aboriginal culture so he represented water and land and Aboriginal people in a way that I think is it's scientific he's trying to document you know, what he sees before him in the most honest way he can but you feel a deep respect coming out of his work his paintings are exquisitely beautiful he actually drew like little bugs that he found in the armpits of geckos it's slightly weird you know he, he drew moths that flew into his cup of coffee He had this sort of eccentric way of going about things And a respectful way of, of looking at the landscape
2: Even his drawings of the desert And of heat mirage It's the terrible heat that he and Burke mm. and Wills endured Are very sympathetic
1: I mean the, thing, the reason I like Ludwig too Is that while he was painting that country out there In western New South Wales Burke was actually trying to kill him that he had no, no uh, respect for what Becker was trying to do, to understand the mysteries of the land through scientific knowledge. Um, and he made Becker do all these jobs around the camp and took him away from his science. And you know, Becker was the oldest bloke on that trip and he was worked pretty hard. I don't think there's, there's too much doubt that Burke contributed to Becker's death.
10: I'm Angus I'm on a property, a cattle station, it used to be a sheep and cattle station, but now it's just straight cattle. 130 kilometres down the river from Longridge, down the Thompson River. I was originally born in Bathurst, but I've spent my whole life at Noonbar, and I love it. I'm involved in natural history as well as trying to make a living out of cattle, which is a bit challenging at times.
2: <laughs> You're like, Third generation now? Are
10: you the third? Yes, I'm the third generation. I'm just adding up there. My (laughs) children are the fourth.
2: What's the river like where you are?
10: We're on the top end of the Channel Country, so we've got fairly extensive floodplains and strings of permanent waterholes.
2: How often is it flowing and how often is it dry?
10: (laughs) It's usually dry. Usually there's just a string of waterholes with nothing in between. And we don't get regular floods because we live in a very much a boom and bust environment. We get most of the water that comes into the system comes from the northeast at the top end of the Thompson system and over on the top end of the Baku that actually head up in the higher rainfall areas. But the one characteristic of the system is the whole irregularity of it. It rains when it rains and there's lots of dry periods in between. We've just had the worst drought in a in hundred years and when you're struggling to keep your stock alive and all the waters are drying up and the cattle are dying and all the emus are dead, the roos are all dying, all the birds are gone, it's pretty hard to actually emotionally stay on top of it.
2: Mm. And when it's flooding then
10: what? Oh it's wonderful, everything smells good and looks good and there's animals everywhere, insects and stock do well, it makes you you realise why you're actually there. You've got to realise that the norm is dry and you have to manage accordingly. But when it gets very, very dry, it's still emotionally and physically very hard to survive when you're trying to make a living.
2: Angus Emmett, who now runs Noonbar Station.
9: Australia is like a saucer, it's higher at the edges than it is in the middle. In fact, Lake Eyre, which is the vestige of the inland sea, is below sea level. So there's a nice irony, isn't there, to the fact that there was an inland sea, Sturt was right, but we all showed up several thousand years too late. That, that fits into a kind of narrative structure we're familiar with. There's a dramatic irony to that. There was not inland sea, but we missed out on us. Mm. And then you can say, OK, well, we need to set this to rights. Now, what happens at the end of the 19th century is that Australians start to think of the desert as a big bowl of nothing. It's a big absence. There's nothing there. There's no nature. The desert is the negation of nature. And by the 1870s, the 1880s, there is a new discourse happening which says, OK, we've got to bring nature to the centre of Australia and the way we'll bring nature to the centre of Australia is through hydro engineering." Now today, we think of engineering as the opposite of nature. We think that the choice is between leaving a valley in its natural state or putting a dirty big concrete wall at one end and damming it and calling it a dam and sacrificing nature to this artificial cause, and you've got to do some kind of cost-benefit analysis to decide whether you want to do that or not. Yeah. But in the 19th century, the hydro engineer was going to bring nature to a land that had been deserted by nature. We have to bear in mind that we're used to talking about Australia as distinctive. We're used to saying, OK, let's understand Australian history and Australian character by talking about the ways in which we are different from other people, but there are also—it's also important to look at the ways in which we are the same as other people. And in the 19th century and into the 20th century, the building of dams has been a great nation-building project throughout the world, and it remains so. You know, it, if you look at India or China uh, or or America. The building of a dam was essential to the building of a nation. And we are buying into a global discourse in this. It's not something that makes us peculiar. It's something that it's, it's an attitude that ties us in with an ideology that is pervasive throughout the West and isn't laughable or contemptible or easily dismissed. I mean, the idea that there should be farms on which you grow food and that, that water should be used for maximum benefit is not of itself risible.
5: Now the stock have started dying, for the Lord has sent a drought. But we're sick of prayers and providence. We're going to do without. With the derricks up above us and the solid earth below, we are waiting at the lever for the word to let her go. Sinking down, deeper down, oh, we'll sink it deeper down. As the drill is plugging downward at a thousand feet of level, if the Lord won't send us water, oh, we'll get it from the devil. Yes, we'll get it from the devil, deep at down. Banjo Patterson, 1896.
3: Somebody like yourself to explain the channel country to, you it's natural irrigation. Oh, there's so many species of feed down there growing in those green fingers. It's just like the vein of a leaf. Um, Every flood grows a bit different stuff. There's a lot of varieties down there and um, if we can get an inch rain, that'll be a lot of clover down there. Then you've got to buy the needle and thread because the cattle uh, put on the condition that quick that they bust their eyes and you've got to stitch them up.
2: Is that so? <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's how one old fellow explained it to me.
2: So why, like, <laughs> why do you love it so much?
3: Well, probably because I know nothing else, but it grows on you. I've been down there in droughts with pack horses and tongue hanging out between waterholes, holes. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I could have gone a lot of other places as a pilot, but uh, I just enjoy living here. Just being bred to the bush.
1: When you cut down Mallee and add a bit of water it's phenomenally productive the the amount of energy and good things in that soil are amazing so when they up at Mildura when there was a little uh, garden around the um, massive sheep station that was growing vines and other vegetables and when people interested in irrigation saw the way that gee you know this this garden is blooming in the desert it just got people's brains going hang on you know If you can grow a vine here in the middle of a desert with a bit of water pumped out of the river imagine what you could do if you could put thousands of acres under irrigation it's that you know classic aussie thing of taking a piece of 4b2 and turning it into an airplane you know the innovation thing But let's have a bit of a try of this let's see if it works yes it worked well let's put it uh into practice on a massive scale and and that was one of the great drivers that people saw tangible benefits on a small scale and then extrapolated to say, Well let's get the whole the whole mm. country under irrigation.
2: There were some pretty vicious droughts in the late eighteen eighties as well, weren't there? And then a huge flood, which it, it almost seems to me like some kind of a message. You know, look what happens when you've got nothing and then look what happens when you've then then there's just so much water.
1: There was there's a couple of messages there where one is that, yes, if you irrigated land, it could be enormously productive, and people believed in that, and that spurred a range of developments. But the thing that then kicked in pretty hard was the uncertainty and variability in the climate. So those the droughts and the floods. So the question then became not whether irrigation was possible. The question was, how do you actually get certainty into this endeavour? And the certainty would come by damming and locking the rivers.
0: The recent and unprecedented floods, with their enormous toll of human suffering and economic losses, are a reminder that the Murray system, if tamed, is by no means subdued. The abnormal and the unpredictable have always been a thorn in the path of progress, and nature is the sternest of foes. Bernard Cronin, Walkabout magazine, 1957.
2: Over time, the moral dimensions of our attitudes towards rivers have shifted. Up to the 1880s, settlers believed water belonged to everyone. Interfering with the water meant messing with your neighbor's needs and was against common law. But the irrigation fantasies of the late 19th century changed all that. It became literally immoral, against God's will no less, not to alter river flow. The Cooper is the last major eastern river to remain untouched by irrigation projects, but it survived in the face of over a hundred years of a powerful industrial history, which in its nascent years was enthusiastically supported not only by farmers and settlers, but by poets such as Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, and even artists like W. C. Pigany. Hare's environmental lawyer and art historian, Tim Bonnyhady,
11: Pigany is one of the great late 19th century and early 20th century landscape painters in Australia. He is the first major landscape painter who's actually born in Australia and trained as an artist to a limited extent in Australia. And he, he starts in Tasmania where he both works for the uh, Surveyor-General's Department and is an artist, begins painting water there. Places like Lake St Clair, even Lake Pedder, are important in his art. He moves to New South Wales, moves to Sydney in 1880 and is looking for new water subjects. And he finds them partly in Sydney, near where he lives in Hunters Hill. He paints the Lane Cove River, but he also goes inland and in... 1890, there is one of the great, great floods on the Darling River, and he goes out specifically to paint that flood, and he paints it immediately. There are two significant pictures which he uh, exhibits that year in Sydney in 1890, depicting the flood on the Darling, but his great picture of the flood on the Darling is done five years later in 1895. It's one of his biggest, most beautiful paintings uh, and it's bought immediately by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and it becomes one of the icons of Australian art. In the 1890s pictures there's a lot of land in the foreground and there is much more action whereas in the big 1895 picture all that land has been stripped out and it's like looking at a a vast inland sea and there's a kind of quiet and stillness about the the big 1895 picture which is lacking in the 1890s one and there's a kind of i guess beauty and quiet about the light and the clouds again in the 1895 picture which is lacking in the in the earlier ones
2: Was he buying into the whole debate about, well, the morality of letting water go to waste and needing to harness that flood water?
11: Yes, he was. Pigany is an artist who is deeply interested in water conservation. Not long after he exhibited his big picture of the flood in the Darling and it was bought by the Art Gallery of New South Wales, a major contemporary critic called... Souter, who knew Pigney and had interviewed him, described that picture as an argument for water conservation. In other words, an argument for harnessing those floodwaters and then using them in the dry years. So it's a painting with a moral, it's a painting with a political purpose. It's saying, look, here is this spectacular amount of water sitting there. If we do nothing um, when this kind of event occurs, it will just all disappear and then the droughts will inevitably come and then all the stock will die. If we could only capture this water, then we could use it in, in the dry years.
6: Well, it's really staggering. You go down there in a drought and you drive across and you think nothing and a big rain comes and you come in. And for far as you can see there's miles of water out over the plains, everywhere. And it'll be 27, 30 feet deep in the through the channels. And the place second place we bought, the first place we bought after Noonba, Waterloo, got its name by the fact that there was Drover going down with eight thousand with us and he camped just inside the outside channel, and that night just unexpectedly started to rain. By morning he couldn't get out and kept on pouring rain and floods and washed every one of the 8,000 sheep away, and they called it the Waterloo. That's how it got its name, that place.
2: How quickly does it go from being bone dry to being...?
6: Well, we've seen the Bergman Creek bone dry, a dark night, and gone out in the morning, it's been flood all over the flats. The Thompson is a bit slower usually, but a big general rain will put in flood and within days and that flood will stay up anything from a month to six weeks that stays in flood from that one big rain. It's a, it's a wonderful sight to see if you could ever see it. But I've often flown up over in flood and just to see where that flood water is and what it does is just, of course it tears the fences out, it takes things, hell of a benefit comes behind it. It's great, Just we love seeing it you know, because we don't often see it, it's only every year or so you see these big floods.
5: I drown dry gullies and lave bare hills. I turn drought ruts into rippling rills. I form fair islands and glades all green till every bed is a sylvan scene. I have watered the barren land ten leagues wide, but in vain I have tried. Ah, in vain I have tried to show the sign Of the great all-giver, the word to a people. Oh, lock your river. Henry Lawson, 1899.
11: They are both great advocates, particularly in their verse, of the importance of exploiting water. Patterson writes a fabulous poem about artesian water and the excitement of these bores, which particularly in the 1890s began to be sunk in a big way in uh, the far west of New South Wales and the kind of huge amounts of water which particularly to begin with came out of them. But it was Henry Lawson much more than Patterson who was interested in that kind of exploitation of the interior and it was an enduring theme in his work through the 1890s, through the early 1900s, even up to not long before his death, when he's given a kind of government position to rescue him from poverty and and drunkenness in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area. And he characterises himself there as an irrigation poet. And he sees it um, in letters he writes as one of the enduring aspects of his writing. Mm.
2: He didn't mince words so about the horrors. I mean, I think Banjo-Patterson was much more romantic. Lawson was a bit darker. And he didn't really mince his words about the horrors of a dry and desolate bush.
11: No, that's right. I mean, Lawson is a, a much darker and I also think a much better and much more interesting writer and individual than Patterson was. And so you do get that kind of horror expressed very powerfully in his work of droughts and of desolation in the far west of New South Wales based partly on a trip he made to Burke and to places like the Peru. Uh, And then within that context, I guess it's a fairly standard kind of argument a bit similar to the the Pygony kind of thing. I mean, on the one hand, you have these awful dry years and then the argument is, well, what can we do about it? The argument is to try and make the most of the big rains and floodwaters when they occur.
2: Tim Bonnehady, and you've been listening to Hindsight on ABC Radio National. You also heard the voices of Bruce, Mary and Angus Emmett, Sandy and Anne Kidd, Julie and Ian Groves, Michael Cathcart, Tom Griffiths, Paul Sinclair and Richard Kingsford. Readings were by Jane Ullman and Nick Franklin. Special thanks to Nora Brandley and the Lake Eyre Basin Catchment Committee. Next week, we see how Federation, optimism and the national identity expressed itself in a cultural obsession with the power of hydro engineering, and we hear how contemporary pastoralism practices have started to change. Technical production was by Stephen Tilley. I'm Gretchen Miller, and I'll see you next week, but I'll leave the last words to a pastoral manager, Marie Norton, bookkeeper for Minka Station, which is owned by the cattle company S. Kidman & Co. With 14,000 cattle on close to 4 million acres, it's by far the largest property of those we've spoken to today and is located on a mix of wetland and gibber country in the Strislecki Desert, well down the Cooper. And en-route to Lake Eyre.
5: And, uh, yeah, it was a giver. The um, the button grass and Mitchell grass is probably uh, the best fattening country. Oh well, the, other than the river country, mm. but uh, it's the good uh, good grasses. So yeah, depend on how you define harsh. <laughs> Garden doesn't look harsh. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, you just love the country. And um I don't look at it as harsh country. Yep. Like the vastness and the, the quietness and and not the so busy sort of life. Well it's still a busy life, but yep. not run by a clock so much as as by the sun I guess.